0: Good morning. Uh, please open with me to Zechariah chapter 6, starting at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldi, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, to Bijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God.
1: Good morning to all. I wondered if you started your morning by looking into the mirror. Did anybody look in the mirror this morning? True confessions. Some of you should. Some of you shouldn't. <laughs> but how did that go, really? Especially the earlier, the earlier you inspected yourself in that mirror, how did it go? It's usually cringe worthy, isn't it? But you know, I've got an insight for you. I've got good news about that. That is not you in that mirror. So you're standing there looking into that mirror and that's you. But that's not you in the mirror. I can prove it to you. Raise your right hand in the mirror or in front of the mirror and that guy raises his left hand. Happens every time. But I'm getting at here how we see things and how we Misperceive things. It's, it's very common to our humanity, even just looking in the mirror and thinking that's us. And I've been in this study of the prophet Zechariah, getting challenged as to how do I see things? What's my perspective? And at the same time, I, I had picked up and I was reading actually audiobook, because that's the way I tend to read the classics. I'm listening to a, a fairly modern classic that has a a sci-fi twist to it. Any sci-fi fans here? That's short for science fiction. I'm not totally a science fiction fan, but I found it real interesting that the character in the story goes to another planet and learns that there's a fourth dimension to time. You know how we're so locked into, we only really understand there's past, there's present, there's future. That's the continuum we're on. But no, not in this sci-fi. He gets a fourth dimension And so he starts to see time working in different ways, and the past and the the future can just intersect, and you might be looking past, but now you're looking forward, and and it just kind of opens up possibilities. Well, that's science fiction, but it's no fiction that God is seeing fourth dimension, fifth, sixth, way beyond. We call it eternity, don't we? And uh, C.S. Lewis always helps us out, and he calls it God's eternal now. Think about it. When you step into eternity, there simply isn't time. There isn't past, present, future. There's now. God sees it, and he lets the prophet see some of it too. And I've never been as uh, much an understanding the passage in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, we're looking into a glass, a mirror, dimly we don't see clearly even our new shiny polished mirrors probably compared to what they had it's still not clear image of who we are and we know in part he said right and we what we prophesy in part and even Zechariah with all he's seeing and this journey we're going to go on in the next few minutes to try to see what the prophet saw and that's the question I've come to ask what did The prophets see. What really sparked that for me was reading Kaiser. Somebody I studied back in seminary days. Walt Kaiser says, God's future ruler was now visible in the line of David. God's future ruler, that's the promised Messiah, is now visible. Visible, he's not here yet, but he's visible as the prophet sees and looks into God's eternal now, and he's in the line of, Of David as promised. So, looking into the future, as we will, looking sometimes into the past, sometimes landing right in the present, let's face it, studying and looking into the prophets, it's not chronological. It doesn't work that way. So, we best avoid being dogmatic as though we can nail down the predictions, like, oh, I've got it. Or my, I've got the teacher who can tell me what this means and when it's going to happen. Their fulfillments, promises made, fulfillments coming. Well, that's a safeguard that we want on our study and our discussion of the prophets. But we don't want that safeguard to limit us concerning the wonder of peering into God's eternal, eternal now. So next slide brings up promises and predictions. The nature of biblical prophecy is this. You think about it as predictions. Prophets predict it comes true or not. No, it's more about promise being fulfilled than it's about prediction being figured out. Beecher said this, it was the standing prediction to come and it was an available religious doctrine right for the time being that every fulfilled promise is a fulfilled prediction. And Kaiser again, the prophets were proclaimers of righteousness who preached both law, right? We need to line up with this, people of Judah, people of Israel, get right on this, both law and promise, and remember what God has promised you when you obey. And this motivates the people to repentance, got to turn from that sin, and a life of obedience, a sanctified life before God in the will and plan of God. See, the promise of God In the prophets was a single unified plan centered on Israel and Judah centered there a plan for them and always the nations it's eternal in scope and its ultimate fulfillment yet what comes with it is critical moments even plateaus moments and times where something's being fulfilled and the prophet is seeing this and we try To follow along. So realize also this there was no rival plan. This plan is being unfolded and the prophets are declaring it. There's no rival plan on the street. There's no theology. There's no philosophy in the ancient Near East to compare. Nothing. God's promise of a Messiah, expressed through the predictions of his prophets, was absolutely a unique plan. And you know, it still is. And that ultimate plan. It's what we preach. It's called the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, that we open your word. We hear the words from the prophet Zechariah and what he saw and what he declares. And we we would like to see something too. Lord, we know we see in part. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But we look forward to the perfect making of the partial thing is complete and whole. Lord, let us dwell in the wonder of what you see, who you are, what your gospel proclaims as truth. We pray it in, in Jesus' name, amen. A little background. Some of you could fill in the blanks for me right now, right, because we've, we've been spending time, thanks to our pastor and elders, to uh, to, to dwell in the, the, the prophets and learn what they're teaching us, what they're seeing, what they're speaking. Well, Zechariah recently arrived from Babylonian captivity. They had been released by Cyrus the Persian. We have this amazingly complex prophecy anchored in a very simple time and place reality. 520 BC, we even know it's November when this is being delivered to us. It's being delivered by a young man. Don't you picture Zechariah? He's got to be an old guy with a really long beard or something. Chapter 2, we learn he's a young man. He was born in captivity and has come for his first time now to his the home of his fathers. Guess what? He's a priest prophet in both offices. And his name, Zechariah or Zechariah God remembers, Yahweh remembers is the meaning of his name. What he sees and records is second only in breadth to the prophet Isaiah and the scroll that he produced. Zechariah is in that category. And it's centered on the temple and its rebuilding. Many have called this the apocalypse of the Old Testament. What's that mean? Understanding the end. You see, much of this revelation in Zechariah is in the revelation sometimes called the Apocalypse, that finishes off the Scriptures, the book of Revelation. Now, Zechariah overlaps Haggai. Jeremiah brought us Haggai last week. I think he's bringing Haggai to the Cape right now as we speak. Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They overlap. But Haggai's only got a couple months, it seems, to preach, overlap a little bit with Zechariah, and he goes the next couple years. So what we're getting in the book of Zechariah, maybe that's why it's 14 chapters compared to Haggai's 2. But the message is the same. Get on with rebuilding the temple. There's the message. Opposition from neighbors and the indifference of the Judeans at this point has caused the work to grind to a halt. But more than Haggai's admonishments and warnings, which are needed, what's Zechariah bringing? A message that there's a great promise fulfilled if you will build it. If you will only get it done. There's a promise to be fulfilled. And so we see the outline that Bill, at least, has distilled from a study of these 14 chapters. And it kind of is a simple structure to it in all the complexity of what's in these parts. There's a call to repentance. Then there are eight night visions. Not dreams, even though they're at night. He's awake and he's getting visions, eight of them. And I really want to land on this portion, the priest-king. It's the portion that Justin just read for us from chapter 6. The priest-king. And then we can take off again and fly through the pastoral burden onto the prophetic burden and conclude there the book of Zechariah. And you should at that point say, man, I need to read this book many times over now. Because Bill didn't give me enough, and that will be the reality. So who's going to read it several times over after this? Any volunteers? Because the next thing, the first thing is the call to repentance. Zechariah 1, 1 to 6. In that portion, God was angry with their fathers, Zechariah warns. What fathers? The generation that lost Judea to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and through their disobedience, God brings Babylon against Judea, and they've been taken into captivity, and that 70 years is now about concluded. The warnings here reflect Moses' warnings of Deuteronomy 28, where they're going to be off the land if they don't obey his word. But with it always comes the promise of return. Zechariah 1:3: Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Hosts means armies, It's, it's heaven's armies, it's all the angels fighting on God's behalf. This is the Lord of all that army, and he says, Return to me, I'll return to you. That's the promise in their repentance. Then we go right into the eight night visions. What did the prophet see? Buckle your seatbelt. Because it's a wild ride. He saw pictures. No, more like a movie. No, more like a movie trailer. You know how they put pieces of a movie together and they, they take some of the past and some of the future of that and they put it together and they say, I've got to see more of this. Or you say, no, that helps me know I'm not going to see this one ever. <laughs> but there's an overarching theme. Get on with this temple because the Messiah will come and fulfill the eternal one. That's what he starts to see. Oh, there's a bigger temple in view than even the one bigger in, in scope, an eternal impact. All right, I said it's kind of a wild ride. But it's structured in a chiastic structure. Who knows that word? Jeremiah taught us that a few weeks back. Chi is the Greek letter that looks like an X, right? That's the first letter in the word Christos, the Greek, for Christ, which is the rendering of the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. That's the anointed one. That's the expected one. That's the promised one. And so... it's not necessary that we relate the Greek X shape to this structure, but it might help us remember that's, that's how it's structured. The eight visions come with, like, say, number one here that relates to number eight over here. But we're going in this pattern. I'm going to get one, then two. But two is relating to seven over here. This is how the prophet is seeing into what God sees. First, Up here, four horses. The riders on them are are like reporters going out to get the news. They find out that the nations are at ease. They shouldn't be. They think it's safe because Persia has the peace plan right now. But their evil intent remains against Israel and Judah and the promises of God. So they should not be at ease. Well, that relates to number eight. When you read along and you finally get to eight, where there's four chariots. These are God's judgments on the nations. You know, those evil intended nations. It's going out in every direction. The four winds of heaven is referred to. All right. Number two is the four horns. Horns, or like, this is a picture of the horn of, of a of a strong uh, cow or something. What do you call those? The male cow, (laughs) a bull, a steer, you know, those things. Okay, picture the power in that horn. That's the power of nations that the prophet is seeing. Most likely, Babylon, Persia, Greek, yet to rise to power, and Rome. These empires are broken off, though, by four craftsmen, Skilled artisans break them off as God raises them up to do so. I wasn't promising you'd understand all this. I don't think Zechariah understands all this, but he's seeing something. How about this one? Just in time for Halloween. This is scary. The woman in the basket. She's just the, the, uh, the manifestation of vile sin. But it's being removed from Zion. Zion and flown back by stork-winged women flying the vile woman in the basket back to Babylon and dropping her there. Then comes the measuring line, vision three. Jerusalem is to expand in the future. It's going to grow. And it's going to go beyond the walls even. So how will the protection be there? God says, I will be your wall of fire. And that is seen in this vision. This is also where God calls Israel the apple of my eye. There's an expression, and it's one of many that you probably have in your life and you maybe didn't know where they come from. The apple of my eye is right here in this vision. God says, you know, you touch the pupil of your eye, you know it hurts. You know how sensitive, most sensitive part of the body. Touch Israel, you will hurt because he is the wall of fire. And this is the apple Of his eye. Well, that relates to the flying scroll, of course, you knew that. The flying scroll, they might as well be bombers. Their curses being dropped on all who work against God's plan, his call for Zion, his promises. All those that work against it, the scroll flies over and drops curses on them. Well, we've actually gotten to the center point. Of the chi, of the X. Because right in there, we find the center to relating. We actually have a kind of an image of it right here. Do you see how this is a, a mirror image? You've got the, the box and the flowers and so forth going out. They, you've come into here, and this relates to that. Just like the little sign out there relates to the little sign out there. You're actually seeing a chiastic structure. And right in the middle, where it's all pointing, it's coming to the crosshairs, Is Joshua the high priest and a lampstand and two olive trees? Hmm. You see Joshua first as high priest, accused by Satan. Do you know that he is dung spattered? Spattered with with cow dung? Now he's adorned after that in rich robes and and a beautiful turban on his head. He's restored. Here he's called a brand plucked from the fire. You've heard that expression. He's representative of the kingdom of priests that Exodus 19 said they would be. It's a sign and a wonder even that the high priesthood has survived the exile. This, by the way, is what could be called a religious return. It's estimated that one in seven of those returning at this time from Babylonian captivity are priests. The priesthood is coming back to the land. Well... How does that relate to a lampstand and olive trees? Well, the seven-branched menorah is what's in view here—the lampstand of the temple. It has a constant supply of oil. Ah, constant supply from the two olive trees. There's actually even a system providing the oil from the trees to the uh, to the lamps, and this represents Joshua as priest and Zerubbabel, and in the kingly line of David. So you've got priest Joshua, and you have king. He's not being made king, because you can't make a king under Persian rule. He's a governor of Judea. His name is Zerubbabel. And that name means sown in Babylon. That's where he's come from, too. Remember, about 70 years has passed. You don't have much of that generation anymore. You have the next He was sown in Babylon, but he's in the line of David. The menorah, by the way, that Zechariah saw is the centerpiece of the temple. And you know who else saw it? John, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He saw it. It represents the light to the nations. By the way, Lizzie and Bill got to see the menorah that has been made for the next temple in Jerusalem. If there really is going to be one, wait and read the news. But the preparations have been made. And you can see the menorah standing out there, ready to be put in place. But it's not by might or power. Next slide says, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You might be familiar with that passage. You might have used it in prayer It's a good one. Well, here's the context. It's not by military might that this will get done, this temple. It's not by political power. Think of how much stock we put in political power. It's not by that. But by my spirit, says the Lord. There's another expression that comes from this portion. The expression grace, grace. Did you ever learn to use that to speak to something that's an obstacle in your way and, and, and speak grace, grace? Well, the context of that is Zechariah 4.7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. That's where it comes from. All right, the great mountain hindrances to completing the temple there's lots of them the people have been yielding to those hindrances but they'll become a plane the idea of a mountain removed and Jesus talks about a mountain cast into the sea that's the image and he shall bring forward the top stone well okay wait a minute. we're talking about Zerubbabel the would-be king if he could be crowned king carrying the capstone this is a massive stone and he's going to carry it, at least in the vision, and climb up the scaffolding and, and up the side of the temple and put it in place as the capstone of the temple. With shouts, what? It's going, to, it's going to take grace grace to it to accomplish the capping of the temple. But what's the prophet seeing but the completion and the honoring of Zerubbabel? Even though there's something that he's not going to receive because it's not about him becoming king. It's about the priest king. And this is the passage that we read earlier. We can take our next slide. And I'll read a portion of that in just a moment. This is not a vision now. You see, we've been in the eight night visions. Did you, did you like the, the wild ride? Now you know. I've got to go back and read that. But he's not in a vision anymore. This is now in his real time. But he performs, this is Zechariah, performs a symbolic act in his present reality. You see, emissaries have arrived from Babylon. They've come with gold and silver, sent from the Jewish captives, and it's meant for adorning the temple. You could picture putting it in place in some portions of the temple. But God directs Zechariah to fashion the precious metals into a unique crown. One will be set upon the other. And who is he to crown? Not Zerubbabel. He's to crown Joshua. The priest, king, will be established. And he'll be crowned with many crowns. That's where the many crowns comes from. And then we find that in Revelation 19. There's one called faithful and true on a white horse. And on his head, what? Many crowns. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Could it be that that he is the ultimate priest, king? The coronated Joshua foreshadows the promised Messiah. Both in name. Do you, you know his name, Joshua, what that is? Yehoshua, shortened form, Yeshua. Salvation, that's the name Jesus. Yeshua is Jesus. And in his office, high priest. But it's highly unusual to put the two together. It has been done once before. Anybody? When was it done before? It was before the establishment of the nation of Israel under the Mosaic covenant. It was in the time of Abraham when he had come back from finding Lot and bringing him home. And he comes to Jerusalem. And who meets him there? but Melchizedek, the priest king of Jerusalem. Okay, that could be obscure. That happened way back then. Wait a minute. God's eternal now. Zoom way forward. The prophet, I'm sorry, the psalmist in 110 says, after the order of Melchizedek, whoa, and then in Hebrews, the Hebrews writer picks it up and says that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the priest king. And this is what Zechariah is seeing. And he's prefiguring it in Joshua being crowned. While Zerubbabel's honored, he's even got the guy to put the capstone, but he's not the image of what's coming for the king who will be the priest king. Zechariah 6, 12-13, a portion of what we read earlier. Behold the man Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The Latin that will be spoken one day, about 500 years from this time, is Ecce homo, when Pilate says, Behold the man. This man is the branch. And the between them both that that concludes with is what? Both priest and king. This unique amalgamation. He will build the ultimate temple. And who is this one then named branch? He's first presented back in Zechariah 3. Remember, don't think chronological. You got a glimpse there. And now we get a clearer picture from Zechariah 6. And just use this to worship for a moment as you consider who this branch is, and I, I have a compilation for us. Next slide. From these books in the Bible, because they make reference to this branch, or the, or the offshoot, the, the shoot off of David and that line of promise. He is, and this is what the prophet saw, my servant, that's Jesus, suffering rejection in his first advent. He is the builder of the temple. That is Jesus' body. He was falsely accused that he would, said he would tear down the temple in Jerusalem and he would rebuild it, said he could rebuild it in three days. Nobody knew he could, nobody thought he could do that. And he was talking about his body. That is the temple. And he makes us his body. He's a branch off of King David. There's the kingly covenant promise always maintained. He's the successor to Joshua, the high priest. The priestly role is enjoined. He is ruler as priest-king from his throne. Both offices in one after the order of Melchizedek. He is the root and offspring of David. That's the planting of Israel. He's also the root of Jesse, David's father. And that's the grafting in of the nations. Remember that one unified plan. He's the Lord, our righteousness. Jesus is Yahweh and becomes our righteousness. And he is beautiful and glorious. And can the congregation say, Amen. This is the branch. And Zechariah got a glimpse. Next slide. We shift into the pastoral burden. And after that is the prophetic burden. And we're, we're concluding so So stay with me here. How does a pastoral burden come in in the midst of all this prophetic activity from soaring out to the future and popping back into the past? The prophet swings into the pastoral present as the flock of Judah needs guidance. Hey, we sheep, (laughs) we need pastoral help from one another and from those that God puts in our lives to elder and shepherd us. So, So yes, Zechariah's got to step up there too. They need guidance on their faith and practice upon the return to the land. How do we function in this strange new world? This isn't Babylon anymore. There's matters of justice, mercy, fasts and feasts and fellowship that need to be addressed. Here we are. Let's adopt this for our present. There's pastoral guidance for us right here in Zechariah. Zechariah 7. 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, and here's pastoral guidance, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Got it? Good. It reads like Paul to the churches, doesn't it? A half millennium later, he'll be giving this kind of instruction to the churches. In fact, He's quoted, or he quotes Zechariah in the next passage. These are the things that you shall do from Zechariah 8 now. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So there's redirection provided. In the midst of the pastoral burden, the Lord yet interrupts. Oh, it's just like God, and is eternal now to, to interrupt in the people trying to figure out how to be a congregation to say, "But remember, Zechariah 8:2: "I am jealous for Zion, with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. You see, jealous could be rendered zealous. You see the zeal of God. Uh, jealous, by the way, is a positive in God. It means He wants what is His. He's. Jealous and zealous for Zion, meaning Jerusalem, and this temple that's to be built because it is his. He's more zealous and jealous than they are, and he, and he interrupts the pastoral burden to show that he has returned and he will dwell there. While this finds ultimate fulfillment in the new Jerusalem, there are restr- strong uh, reflections of this in God's eternal now that he's letting us see. You see, it is remarkable to stand, which you can do today, at the Western Wall, which is a retaining wall supporting the Temple Mount, where the temple stood. And you can join the call there that's going on continually for Mashiach, Messiah, come. That call is going forth. It's always rising. And, but you're realizing you're among the few who actually have the privilege of knowing who he is, who you're calling for, and that he's preparing to come, to come again. Uh, we're calling for his kingdom to come and for his city to descend and ultimately transform the current into the forever. Next slide shows some lyrics. I happen to be influenced by song lyrics and Andrew Peterson, you might know, uh, Is He Worthy is a song that maybe he's best known for. He, uh, he's obviously gone to the Western Wall and he writes about it in a song called Maybe Next Year. Maybe next year plays on the idea that at the end of Passover, uh, when the family gets up from the Seder table, they say, next year in Jerusalem. Like we're in our dispersion. We're, We're in Babylon now. But next year in Jerusalem. We'll go back. And that's what Peterson has done. He goes to the wall and he says, at the Western Wall, I bowed my head. I knew that every word I read, right? Every word of the prophet that I read is true. As the prophets spoke from another age, and the song rose up, because there's always a song rising there. The song rose up from the sacred page. The scripture is being sung to you. And I never felt so near. I never felt so far away. But you tore the curtain and shook the ground. The saints woke up and they walked around. And resurrection came to town that day. Like in that city that we long for. Do you long for that city? A city that we long for. that We feel so far away where the dawn will drive away our tears and we'll meet in the new Jerusalem someday, maybe next year. I think that captures the heart. It even captures the pastoral burden that Zechariah was expressing in the midst of God's zeal for Zion. So that brings us to the prophetic burden. And our last portion, what did the prophet see? Well, he sees Israel's priest-king, the ultimate Joshua, coming to Jerusalem. But you know how he came? Gentle and lowly. That's how he came. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That expression, daughter of Zion, Jerusalem, that's an affectionate term of God towards Israel under the domination of another power. At the time of Jesus, now it's the Roman Empire. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Who do you see on that donkey? You see a priest king, and he's entering Jerusalem humbly. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off wait a minute, Rome ends up conquering Israel. Ah, the prophet is seeing further into the future. You see, you can't do the chronology thing. He sees farther out. They will be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river, that's the Euphrates, like the prime meridian of everything you measure in that region, over, that's all going to be under his domination to the ends of the earth. Oh, if you wondered, The peace will go, his peace, to the ends of the earth. The ultimate is Messiah's earthly kingdom established. And then, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant. Wow. Into the nearer future again, maybe. Maybe a communion table that we're soon to share. The blood of his covenant, the prophet sees. With you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What? Let's even go back in history. And see Jeremiah in a pit, but even long before, Joseph. And what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. And he lived in that promise. Don't you love how God just sees it all and ties it together and gives us a glimpse? Next slide. What did the prophet see? He saw a shepherd who was martyr lord. This is continuing in the last chapter's. This martyr lord was sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's the, sl- the slave price, by the way. And he ends up throwing it to the potters. We see Judas throwing it in the potter's field. That shepherd is struck. And when he's struck, the sheep scatter, as the gospel writers quoted directly from Zechariah. But then we see him alive again. And the lost sheep that were scattered are now regathered. Starting with his disciples and then Israel and all the nations, because he's promised to those who will come to him and that he has chosen. And with the promise in view, what else does he see? Well, he sees Israel. He sees Jerusalem and the house of David scattered and regathered. There's another one coming. He sees it, and it has happened. The Spirit of grace poured out on this people. You know, all along, though the law instructs on how to live, it's always been by grace whether you'll live it or not. And it's by grace that the pouring out happens on a people, however deserving or undeserving, and they get to see what the prophets saw, who the Messiah is. And they realize that he suffered for their disobedience. They look upon him whom they have pierced. The promise is ultimately fulfilled for a land and a people. What did the prophet see? Our last slide or almost. The priest, king, okay, here's his title. The priest, king, branch, shepherd, lord of hosts, Messiah. We call him Jesus. He brings the nations against Jerusalem. These are the the closing chapter highlights of what Zechariah is seeing. The nations coming against Jerusalem. But who steps down on the Mount of Olives, and it splits under his feet? It's this one, the priest, king, branch, shepherd, lord of hosts, Messiah. He goes to battle against the nations. In Zechariah 14, then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. It signals the whole creation's finest hour. As the Creator, the Redeemer, and now ruling King returns to complete what He had promised so long ago. Listen, that's why we pray. That's why He taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. And you know, He's centered on Jerusalem, and He's pray- said to pray that way there. And you can see what the prophet is saying. There's a new Jerusalem to descend, so pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and ultimately that's the prince of peace, the king, priest himself, who will sit on the throne for eternity. That's who we worship. And I just want to conclude with these words when we consider what the prophet saw. In Zechariah 8, go back into that pastoral burden as we close. Okay, We need a little pastoral care after all of this, don't we? Um, I have returned to Zion, the Lord is saying, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This has to still be looking forward and seeing the f- fullness, the completion of the promise. But old men and, and women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Maybe it's not that far forward because old, I don't know. We're going to get old in and, and the new Jerusalem? You see, don't get chronological. The times are intersecting. But the, the old men, the old women, reach with a staff in his hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of Boys and girls playing in its streets. You see, it's still human, isn't it, in the midst of all this eternal now? What did the prophet see? Well, When Lizzie and I were first in Jerusalem, a man who seemed like you were meeting Zechariah almost, uh, a shopkeeper in the old city of Jerusalem, welcomes us. And then he starts to say, Do you see my children playing out in the streets? The prophet saw prophet saw them now you could critique him theologically but the point is he's dwelling in the promise of what the prophet saw and was fulfilled and he gets to see his children playing in the streets of jerusalem you see that that's how personal our god is that's how real that's how near peterson expresses in that song i never felt so near but Never felt so far away because, you know, this is reality. No, not completely. There's a greater reality, and I long for that. Pray for it. Pray for it. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, we do see in a mirror dimly. We confess that. What Bill has just attempted to uh, relate is a very dim mirror looking through a glass, knowing a little bit, knowing so much in part, prophesying in part. But Lord Jesus, we declare an agreement that the Messiah is visible, that his glories are made known, the, the person of Jesus Christ, the priest king, yourself, the temple that you built, and you make us, those that are yours, to be a part of this glorious structure. We thank you for getting to see something of what the prophet saw. And we pray for the glory of promise to be fulfilled in in each life here, and for your kingdom to come, all in the name of the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. Can we say amen?